Happy Sunday, Marie. Happy Sunday, Diane. How are you today? I am wonderful. How are you doing? I am fantastic today. Good, good, good. It's a beautiful day down there. It is nice here. Yeah, it's probably about 50 degrees. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't feel cold out. You know, so I was out there today with some slide-ins on. So okay. nice day. What about there in DC? It's beautiful. I haven't been outside to check the temperature, but I've been sitting at the window and on a couple of Zoom calls, but it it looks beautiful. People are walking around with like just the, you know, a long sleeve shirt on, so it's not that cold. So look, people look like they're cold. They look like they're comfortable. Oh, okay. So, beautiful day for almost December, so we still have good weather. Yeah, one more one more day. What? It'll be December on Tuesday. Wow. This year went quickly. It did. A lot happened, but it went very quickly. So we're going to talk about um, the first sentence of The Road Less Travel, or the first sentence of the first chapel, the first chapter, rather, life is difficult yes and you know what diane i couldn't remember how we got there <laughs> i was getting ready to think that when you reset that but i can't remember either uh once i said it, i was trying to think what's the prelude but i can't remember how we got there but um what i have done i was thinking i read that book probably in the 80s mm-hmm. I I re- that's what i remember but then a few minutes ago uh, I went back and kind of looked at what other people said about the book. I looked at the, um, like what I do when I go into the library, look at books. I look at the chapter titles. And um, so uh, it was, uh, it was a, it's two books that have changed, that changed my life. Um, one was uh, Up From Slavery, Booker T. Washington. He was a graduate of Hampton University. He walked from West Virginia to Hampton to go to college. But the thing that amazed me, and it still amazed me by about Booker T. Washington, that he built a university with no cell phone, no car, no money per se, and it still exists. And um, it still exists, and it still is a functioning university that has contributed to the, to not just to the United States, but to the world its alumni and the things that have done been done so it's to, that's a, he was amazing to me and the second book is uh, this book the road less travel i remember when i read the book that i had first of all i didn't know I, I never thought about uh life being difficult but once i read it and i was thinking oh that's why it's so hard it's just difficult you know you wonder why am i going through all these changes and why i'm not dealing with some of the things i'm going through but I, no one never ever told me that life was difficult. But once he said that, and once he, I think the next couple of sentences, that once you know that, then you can manage it. And the other thing that um, I learned from that book was um, he talked about Adam and Eve, and in the Garden of Eden, Eden and, God, and God told him that, um, that, you know, the only thing you need to do is stay away from this particular tree. And he said that they, you know, he came to visit them every day and talk with them and walk with them. He said, but they ate from the tree anyway. And he said that the reason they did it because they were lazy. He said, that's who we are. We are lazy and we're lazy. 
and, and lazy in everything. And once you get past that laziness, to me, that's how you, then life is not difficult. Once you can get past that laziness, I can get past my laziness. I can make things less difficult. Just, you know, it might be a big problem, but if I can break it down a piece at a time and do a little bit at a time and get that done, uh, you know, like they say, the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So um, the, same, the same way I look at problems, I might not can manage the whole problem right now, but if I can just kind of uh, hack away at it a little bit at a time and stop being lazy and do the work. And so that's probably why those two, uh, uh, Peck and uh, Booker T. Washington, are some of my favorite uh, people because they did the work. They weren't lazy. Um, and they did the work that is, was the game changer, not only for me, for millions of others, and for the world. If they changed things, so that's kind of why I'm with the book. So, how do you think we got there? Do you remember? I don't remember. I just remember somehow we were talking after the podcast, mm-hmm. and we both talked about the book, "Life is Difficult" quote from the book. So that's all I can recall. And then we said that's what we were going to talk about today. Um, so I went to the shop looking for the book. And I realized something that I can't Google my bookshelf. So I really wanted to just Google it and find out exactly where it was on my bookshelf. And I couldn't find the book. So I can see the title. I can see the book. And like you, it was a book from the 80s. Um, and for me, this book was significant for me. The other significant book for me is um, a book called Three Magic Words. That's by U.S. Anderson, written back in the 50s. Um, and, and, and they're along the same lines, you know, of dealing with yourself, of dealing with the realities of life and figuring out the ultimate question, who are you, right? So when I read the opening line of um, The Road Less Travel, Life is Difficult, it was like a key for me. It, it unlocked the door and unlocked the door of, oh, <laughs> it has supposed to have been this difficult to, from the beginning to now. This is not, you know, unique to me. Life is difficult. And the next part of that is that once you accept that, then you can transcend it. Uh, but until you, you know, you think that life is supposed to be easy and everything is going to go well, then you'll get sidetracked when you have difficulties, you know, when people die, when you lose your job. Uh, so it was like a key for me. Life is difficult. Yes, it is. And so you remember, maybe it was two podcasts ago, I, I say that what I say to myself and to others is one of those things is that may you live a life of ease, right? And the reason why is because life is difficult. So if you can have some, some ease in your life or wish that for other people, that it could be a little easier for them, you know, then, you know, that, that just helps. Right. So, so yeah, that was the road less travel too, was one of my two favorite books and taught me a, a great deal. Um, and like you, it was about problem solving, you know, here is a problem. How do you solve the problem? And I think back on watching my father solve problems. I didn't understand it, but I, I did in time because he wouldn't always solve the problem right away. I would sit there and look at the same problem he's looking at. And it usually was my mother's health. 
right? And I was like, why isn't he doing something about this? And I realized that he was thinking through the problem in order to make and get come up with the best solution. And so that's what M. Scott Peck talks about too, is, you know, life is difficult. You're going to have problems. You have to figure out how to solve those problems in the best way. Um, and so learning how to solve the problems and not just, it's not ignoring the problem, but solving the problem so that it resolves the problem. Yeah, I thought about something you said. I wish you could Google your bookshelf. And I think that, <laughs> uh, I think that um, thank God for Google, you know, it's made us, it seems smarter. I remember one, about 10 years ago, I used to go to this Bible study and, um, and this guy, every time the teacher talked about anything, he would take out his phone and just be doing something with the phone. He would have the answer so quickly. And I was thinking, what is he doing? It's about 10 or 12 years ago. He was ahead of the curve in using Google and an iPhone. But um, one of the things I think when you talk to educators, and I've substitute taught a few times, um, and work, and I work some education projects sometimes, they always say to me, the children are not critical thinkers anymore. We're not creating a group, of, uh, a line of, we're not creating critical, more critical thinkers. And I was thinking that um, one time I was watching Oprah's, uh, that Sunday, Sunday program that she had, and she had some of the thought leaders on there in different areas. And this country singer, she had him on there. And he said that the thing that with computers and, you know, and search engines and those types of things, it takes away your ability to imagine or think. Like he said, if somebody says, what was that movie that we like, we watch every Sunday with uh, Kurt Douglas and, and, and Tony, Tony uh, I forgot the guy's name, Tony, whatever. And so you would have to, you know, if, before Google, you would have to kind of let that kind of marinate in your mind and try to go back to, watching that movie every Sunday with your family, whatever the scenario was. And so he was saying that um, we have lost that ability to kind of like exercise your mind, you know, do those gymnastics with your mind. And I think that, um, I think that, I don't think our kids, they've lost critical thinking because I think people, I think it's in us, but I think that we should teach uh, what Scott Peck talked about, um, we should teach that life is difficult the best way we can to little children and talk to them about life. And I think our parents kind of did that because he also talked about disciplining your children, mm -hmm. but also talked about uh, love. Um, I was in my Sunday school class today and we had breakout groups and, um, and we were talking about sheep and goat, you know, what category do you fall in? And I was telling them that, um, the one of the things that, you know, and especially in this country, we have all these dichotomies, and probably in the world. But just think if we started teaching children about love, and not just love, no one has even taught us to love ourselves. Right. No one taught us to do that. They taught us to be smart and get up and make up your bed and take a bath and wash behind your ears, you know, teach you hygiene and shut up and be quiet when adults are talking. But, you know, the only kind of things that we admire and, and in this country, we don't have monarchs, we have celebrities and, you know, athletes. And so we admire those people. We try to be like those people and which are kind of like facades, really, you know, because they are human beings, too, with flaws. But um, 
but we also it's surprising they fall off, you know, fall off, you know, fall away, or, you know, get in trouble. But they're just human beings. They happen to be blessed with the the gift of the area. But I was telling them, just think if we did two things, if we taught our children to to love themselves in, in K, you know, what that feels like, what that looks like, what that sounds like to love yourself. And then the other thing, to learn how to think, work through problems when things are difficult. How are you, get, instead of scenarios of if Jimmy walked, Jimmy had five apples and you gave him three more apples and and then he ate one apple, how many apples would he have? But what happens if uh, Jimmy doesn't get an apple and you have five apples? What should you do? Well, Diane, those are fabulous, fabulous ideas. And as you were saying them, what I thought is it's really hard to teach something if you don't know it yourself, right? Wow. So then you would have to have adults that, one, saw the value in that. The adults that are making the decisions would see the value in teaching about, you know, really critical thinking, not just, you know, solving, you know, math problems that aren't really related to the world. Um, so, and love. So you really have to know about loving yourself and loving others and compassion in order to teach that to children. So again, I will probably go back to, it's something that as parents and grandparents, we should be teaching that. Yes. And I think I, I agree, but then somebody would have to teach us So somebody needs to write a book on that. When I was in a grad school, I was going to um, do all of my research on listening, but I only could find two books, and they were really small books, not that much research on listen, listening, because I, cause I remember one time I was in a Bible study, and then my pastor was saying that um, in this country, we're not taught to listen, and he said, in this country, listening is waiting for your turn to talk. And I said, yeah, that's what we do. And so I was thinking, so how do we teach listening? But how do we teach love to a little kid? And how do we teach critical thinking to little kids? But it has to be adults first. We have to be taught, like you said, you can't teach what you don't know. We don't right. know it. <laughs> you know, not we. Not <laughs> So that's not what they teach us. They don't teach us to listen. They don't teach us to critically think, but they want us to write a critical, uh, you know, a comparative paper. They don't teach us to love, but they want people to fall in love and get married and stay married and raise their children to love human, you know, human beings and animals and the earth. But that's not what we're taught. Um, we're taught capitalism. We're taught, um, you know, uh, like you said, stuff, you know, math problems that don't mean anything, but that's the way you pass it. We're taught to pass the test of life past the test of living life not the test to live life. right and, and that kind of goes back to that opening line of m scott pet that life is difficult and life is just a series of problems it is that's all it is and you have to have the discipline and a set of tools in order to solve those problems right so yeah if anything they should be focusing on that that what are the tools to give to kids give to a, that are going to be adults and how to solve problems 
you know, there's, you know, there's, yeah. and I, I say that only because I can think of like, um, it's like, like you were saying, it's like, um, I think of when I was working at the police department, one of the certifications that I ended up getting was in change management. Okay. So change management is big change in, in, in corporations, plus it's change in people. All that is, is the way it was in the past and how it's going to be in the future. And now we need to bring people over to how it's going to be. We know what the problem is. We've got the solution. Now we got to get people to accept the solution, right? Same way in life, right? You may sit there and you have the problem, whatever it is. Now, first of all, you have to face the problem, not try to deny the problem, but face the problem. You look at the problem, analyze the problem, and you come up with what you think the solution is going to be. But you have to have a set of tools, like with this change management certification, they developed a set of tools in order to uh, put those so, that solution into action so that it truly does solve the, the root problem, the cause, you know, the real problem. But no, not taking yeah, that. I, I agree, yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. I remember um, when I first came out of graduate school, I taught, I ran this uh, a community uh, center. Of, it was a part of a community college, but it was a community center that taught GED and uh, basic education and ES, English as a second language and also skills like plumbing and stuff. But one of the classes that I thought that the, the community needed for seniors was um a computer class. We had a, a, a so I got them to set up a little computer lab, and um, and when the old old people now I'm one of those people, older people, they were like in their fifties, sixties, and seventies, and when they came into the class, you know, they were intimidated by these uh, desktops, and so I before we started talking about, <coughs> uh, before we started talking about trying to use the computer, use I think it was Windows, I forgot, probably Windows ninety five. Yeah, because it was in the 90s. Um, and Windows just came out with 95, which made it easier to do because you, know, you, you use the mouse. And one of the things I taught them, uh, I talked to them about every time they come in, clip an article out of a newspaper or um, a magazine about computers. And, we, and that's going to be discussion every day in class. And I think we did that maybe two or three classes before we actually did anything with the computer because I wanted them to show them that um, computers are not going away. That it's just going to get, be a part of your life. And that's what, you know, and that's, they learned that from the articles. So now, uh, and, and a lot of them were afraid and a lot of them were scared, but a lot of them learned how to do stuff. And a lot of them, I spent probably the first six months, six to whatever it was a long time, six months, six weeks. And a lot of them still, I still had to hold their hand to guide them to use the mouse. And um, oh, that was probably muscle memory you know, then. Yes. But one thing I tried to tell them that it's not going away, it's just going to get more complicated. And a point that I, I'm trying to make is that about six or seven years after that, one of the women that was in my class, she was in the class because um, she was probably 60-something, but her husband was a plumber, and he had died, and he didn't have insurance, and he didn't have uh, Social mm-hmm. Security. 
And so at 60 something, at 40 something, she had a baby. So her kid was young. She had a kid who was like less than 15 or less, you know, mm-hmm. she was still raised. And so she still needed an income. She still needed a salary. She need, you know, she needed a, you know, she, she needed to go back to work basically and make money, take her son. And so um, she was one of those people that I, she struggled with just using the mouse. And but she said that she got to because every job that she tries to apply for, she needs computer skills. And I said, yeah, you would get it. It's just practice. And so maybe five or ten years later, this is when I was using Hotmail. Okay. That's how long ago it was. She emailed me, and she told me that she had a job. She was like an office manager, and she said, Thank you for telling me it wasn't going to go away. And so every day I tried to go into the library and just build up my skills and read books about it and do the work. And so that's, you know, with, you know, she did the, she couldn't even mm-hmm. hardly use the mouse, but now she runs her whole office because she, she bit it off a little piece at a time. And I think that with, with life, if we don't start it, we have to tell kids that life is difficult. Maybe that's what we should be telling them. Uh, my, and I go back to, you talk about problem solving. My husband, um, uh, he died in the 90s, but when my cousin's children were little kids, like two on up to eight or nine, he used to tell them, I want you all to be engineers when you all grow up because engineers solve problems. And once you can solve problems, you don't have to chase people for jobs or anything. That's people right. Will chase you. That's right. And so, and some of them. One of them is actually a civil engineer, and you know, and then one of them is works as a water engineer, a water filtration. And so, um, they always said they remember Charles telling them the engineers solve problems. Mm-hmm. And so, that was good. You know, good you know, um, lessons for them. But no one ever told me about solving problems. They just said, get the, get it done, <laughs> you know, make it happen or, you know, clean up your room or whatever. But good discipline, but not specifically, not specifically kind of concrete ideas about life is difficult, but you can get through it if you learn how to solve Right. It. I think about when you said about what Charles uh said, I think about uh, working with engineers, especially working in automotive, where you had to find the solution to the problem, especially if it was something like cars are exploding, blowing up, people are dying, right? Mm -hmm. So you would have, you know, engineers and they had to have a method of doing that. You know, the method they they use, the method anybody can use is the five whys. You know, the five whys, Toyota started it. It is, okay, whatever the problem is, my, my phone doesn't work. Why doesn't your phone work? Well, I can't hear anybody on the phone. Well, why can't you hear anybody on the phone? Just keep asking why five times to get to the root of what the problem is so that when you go to solve it, you actually solve the problem. And I think Einstein said something like that. If he had an hour to solve a problem, he would use 55 minutes thinking about the problem, Right. You know, because if you don't, if you don't really think through this is the problem, you can come up with a lot of solutions, but you may not solve the problem. And I think that's where people, what happens to people is that sometimes it's just that they just ignore it, one, or then they try to solve it really quickly 
and then it comes back because they haven't really solved the real problem. I just read something on uh, the, the other Bible, Facebook. It said that uh, it was a Bible verse, but this is Diane's interpretation. You don't plant a seed expecting to harvest to the next mm-hmm. day. And so I think that that's what, because of we have uh, this microwave generation and uh, this instant, uh, even instant news for social media, uh, it instant almost everything, you know, if you want to figure out how to make a turkey for Christmas, you just <laughs> Google it, you know, <laughs> and then if you don't have all the ingredients, you write down, or you look at the ingredients and you order them through Instacart and they deliver it to your door, you know, then if you don't have the right pan, you go to um, Walmart, you know, and look at uh, Amazon and see how soon they can deliver it. And so, um, you know, everything is instant, which is a good thing, but also, too, sometimes even when I'm using apps, I, I started thinking that inventor, just think, someone invented, they solved the problem. They, they solved the problem. We just got the solution in our hands, but someone actually solved the problem. Um, and you can go all the way back to the point where someone thought of it as a problem. Other people just deal with it as a problem. You know, they just deal with the report that doesn't work right, <laughs> right? And somebody said, no, this is a problem. Let me find out what it is. And they fix the report. And then it, from then on, it's a lot easier for everybody. But everybody else is just, oh, it's a problem. <laughs> and, and then I think what happens when you said it's a problem, it's a group that will just exacerbate the problem. That's what they talk about, the problem. But it's someone sitting in the corner thinking, well, it doesn't have to be a problem. But there's, you know, so what group are you going to be in? The one that just sit at the water cooler at work and just keep hashing the problem over and blaming? Or you're the one who goes back to your desk or goes sit out at lunchtime thinking, how can this happen? How can this be better? And so, yeah, so it's two, to me, it's two different types of groups. But one of the things he also talked about, he talked about love. And he uh, he basically said love is not a, a feeling, you know, it's an action. And um, he said, "What love is not a feeling? Oh, it's what you do. It's what feeling. you do. It's not a feeling. It's what you do. It's not a feeling." So, um, and I was thinking that because you know I, I still like a romantic comedy, even though I can almost predict what's going to happen in them, but. Um, but that's the love that we know um, in this society that our culture is kind of built more of that romantic type of love, which is just between a man and a woman. But there's a love that I think that is so much, so more important is loving yourself and be intentional about loving yourself and how you're going to treat yourself and your time. And he talked about time too. If you start loving yourself, you start valuing your time. And so uh, I think that Peck is right that we, then we also think we have a lot mm-hmm. of time, you know, you know, once you get probably like 40 or 50, you realize, okay, yeah, time is valuable now. And so, but just think if somebody would have taught you that at five or six years old, that time is valuable and to love yourself and your time is valuable. You are valuable. So how are right. you going to use your time? Would have made a difference probably is as far, it would have made a difference if it was something that people told you and then they showed you. 
and they and, and they showed you just like they showed you learn you know American history and then you learn civics and then you learn government. If it was a class that you took one hundred one and two hundred five and <laughs> you know what I mean that it was something that you built upon that um that it was it, it was intentionally taught that you that time was valuable you are valuable love yourself love your time value who you are value your time who really to me it would help your choices in life with you know your career or what you chose to you know go to, who your friends are your career where you even travel to um you know who you have dinner with who you have lunch with at work um it would to me it would it would be a paradigm shift that people actually taught us as human beings, especially children, about loving yourself and valuing you and valuing you. And because we don't teach that, um, I think maybe that's why M. Scott Peck wrote the other book we talked about, "The People of the Lie." Right. Uh, where he talked oh, about yeah. there is human evil and what he wanted to do was have a classification uh, in, in a mil- mental illness of people that he had run into that were evil. Uh, you know, so we because of the society, uh, the cultures, our culture here uh, that we don't teach things like that, we can have people who move over beyond, you know, from love to being, you know, not compassionate for other people, not having empathy for others, and doing things that are considered "quote unquote" evil. Well, when I, when I was looking at um, his book today, I read into the people of the law. I remember reading the people of the law. I told you that was the first book that actually scared me because th- I didn't know that evil could be personified that evil actually becomes, you know, real. Uh, I always thought, you know, like kids, when you look young and you watch those movies and somebody is dealing with their consciousness and one side is the angel and one side it was the devil and whoever you, you know, they and both of them are speaking to them. So I always thought it was kind of imaginary, but not evil actually coming to a person and becomes, a part of who the person really is. You mean when you read the book? Evil. And yeah, when I read the book, I didn't, I never thought about somebody actually being evil. And maybe it's just sheltered as a child as, um, you know, um, maybe it's just my sheltering. I never thought about people mm. being evil. Um, and then, and he, and the thing that scared me about, and this actually to me, when I read the people of a lie, it was, to me, it was um, it was almost like reading a horror movie. At one point, I was afraid <laughs> to go downstairs to get something. To it, eat. it was because he was telling <laughs> stories of people that he he had counseled, and you know, and so he knew yes. these people. And he was just trying to get it out to the the medical community that these people exist, and we have to address it, and or else you know it'll fester. But it, it never was addressed. Yeah. And, and and guess what we have, evil walking around and and a lot of num a lot, it's just walking around now and and you know I'm you know because of the COVID and everything I watch a lot of Netflix and um what's the other one Prime has a, a video Prime uh, channel too or app I watch that 
and sometimes when I watch the movies, I just see, like, it looks good, but it's so evil. And then also, it's whoever produced it, you good with putting this out, you know, with an underlying evil thread in it. And um, so, yeah, so evil is, I never thought about evil being real. Um, I thought it was, I don't know, I think I was just sheltered in my spirit from evil, from actually pure evil, but evil is real. And, yeah, um, and when I think it. about it, I think about for me, this is just me, um, as I think about what happened in Charleston, Charleston Emanuel AME Church, um, because it really it was wow. something that really hit me hard uh, because I, I could put myself in that I was into that Sunday, Sunday, Wednesday church going for 15 years. So I thought, you know, who would ever mm-hmm. think? you would go to a Wednesday night Bible study and you would die there. Right. So when that happened, because I was really close to Charleston. I was like a couple hours away from it. I remember when it happened. I was like in June of 2015. Cause it was right before July 4th, because I went there July 4th, July 4th. I went to Charleston. I had created this rock that said, um, playing the rock black. And it said, uh, uh, this is rock bottom, but love lives here. And I put all the nine names of the people that died on the back of the rock. Mm-hmm. Because to me, you, wh- what kind of person will walk into a church building, befriend people, sing with them, pray with them, and kill them? Oh my God. Yeah. I think of that as, as an example of what evil does, what evil looks like. That's an action that someone who has no empathy for others, you know, would do. Well, you know, I remember uh, when I was in Bible study in Baltimore and um, when Columbine happened and um, this, the, uh, the pastor who was doing the Bible study, he, he described it the same way you did. He said, in that particular day, that's was the first major school shooting that, you know, started, I don't know if it started all these school shootings, but that was the first one that we have heard of in this country at that level. Um, that he said, what you said, that evil entered mm-hmm. that school that day and just came from out of the depths of hell and walked through that school and shot those children and terrified those teachers and he said something where he can explain it. It was evil. But we're really not taught. That's what I'm saying, that we, everything to me, and, and um, it's, I, I was telling people, I've been talking about this, that everything uh, to me in this country around education is really indoctrination. They want you to believe a certain way and think a certain way. It's very narrow. But I think that now, we, since we had this, hard stop, our hard beginning or our new paradigm shift is that we need to really not just indoctrinate people, 1492, Columbus discovered the ocean blue, but really let's, let's, let's really teach people. And, um, and, and I think that's when you're going to get critical thinkers. You're going to use multiple sources. You're not going to use one source that one textbook. We have the internet. You don't have to. You don't even need to bring a textbook into the classroom. You have the internet, and you have everybody at home. And so you said, let's talk about 
America and how it was and how it what happened before 1492. And everybody can come back with their own whatever they find on the internet or wherever they find. Let's let's talk about that. So we're not going to do that old rote thing. And then and how was the uh, topography of of Idaho and um, if you can find anything in 1492, and who was the inhabitant of Nebraska or Texas in 1492? Um, and let's talk about that. So I think, and, and, and let everybody do their own thing, and I think that all this rote memory and all this, we don't have to do that anymore because we have, we do have Google. Uh, and then you can also go to the Library of Congress on Google, and you can download um, uh, pictures and, um, and documents that was written. And so um, I think that instead of this indoctrination of remote memory, let people explore. And then you are, and then let get you know when class opens Monday or Tuesday in American history, and you've asked them to find who was who lived in. Uh, Texas in 1492, and, and what what did you find? And everybody has three minutes to report. Everybody will come back with something different instead of the same thing. They always wanted everybody to come back with the same thing, but not they. The, the system, the educational system, it was it was kind of homogenous instead of uh, you know um, heterogeneous, where they want you to, a, a collection of ideas and thoughts. And you really didn't get that until college, but not really. They still wanted you to do it there, you know, one way. Um, but I think that you could take a, a first grader now or a second grader, someone who could read pretty well, and say, tell us what happened in America, what was happening in Hampton, Virginia in, in um, 1725. And you can, any, anything you can bring to the table, you can bring it to the table from the food that we ate the places that people would have gone, you know, mm-hmm. who was, what was the makeup of the city? And so now we're actually learning. We're not, you know, and I think, Diane, stuff. I think that if you, if you were saying this a year ago, it would feel like, Oh, it's such a struggle to get there, but I don't think it's going to be as much of a struggle to get your vision. The vision you're, you're showing right now is the holistic vision of learning as the whole person, you know, self-direction, right? All of that. But you got to think right now, the reason why it's probably not going to be such a struggle to get there is because just like a lot of these other institutions and systems because of COVID, they are crumbling down, for example. So with schools, kids are no longer going in the building, being directed by the bell hear the bell, get started, hear the bell, stop. Because that was just all about when you go to work in the factory and you hear the bell, you start work, right? So a lot of those old systems are coming down just because of this this pandemic, right? So I think it's going to be more organic. I think people are going to move to where what you're talking about, more of this you know, holistic type of learning, uh, but I think it's still going to take time, but it's not as far-fetched as it would have been a year ago. And I think that if, um, I think if we do this paradigm shift, you wouldn't be saying, you wouldn't be looking for STEM, 
students. You know, you won't be trying to get uh, underrepresented students in STEM fields. You would be getting people who will be exploring and excited about, it wouldn't be about, it, you can be, like you said, it's holistic. We still, you know, um, we're all STEM students, you know, because every time we picked up, like us using this Anchor app, it was, you know, it's a, we didn't, you had to learn about it. You know, it's a, something you didn't know. So it's all this technology because STEM, one of the, uh, the letters in, is STEM. So if you taught differently or approach education differently, not conditioning education differently, you will create which the country or the uh, environment you're looking for to grow more technologically uh, engineering astute students because it's not it wouldn't be something um, that people are afraid of math it'd be or afraid of technology it'd be a part of who you are it's already a part of who you are it's just you would just go more in depth and that remembering stuff to me is not necessary because you can look it up. Why, you know, uh, Einstein said That's right. he, he don't remember anything that he can look but, up. But, you know, something that you so said, and, and I think this is probably the root of the problem of why it is the way it is, and, you know, it has been a struggle, is that you said we would get the type of environment we're looking for. But not everybody is looking for that type of environment for every child to really be 100% of who they are. So a large part of this system, uh, it, it doesn't include every child to be, you know, 100%. So like I said, I don't think it's going to be that much of a struggle. I think it's really going to start happening organically now just because the things have changed because of the pandemic. I think you're right. And I think that um, we see – we see the results of not educating the masses. Not, I'm not, not indoctrinating the masses. We see what indoctrinating the masses has done. We've seen what indoctrination and the masses have done to this country. But let's truly educate the masses uh, because then we have free thinking, loving, uh, hold, people we are trying to create and um and also too now we have because we have social media and everybody has everything in their palm of their hands you can write you can write something today or show something on the internet today and it becomes viral and it can change your whole life and, and everybody's life around them and so that's the power of this technology that like you and I are talking about this. It's you are talking, we are talking about this paradigm shift or this organic change. And somebody could hear us pick up, you know, just out on the internet board and find our um, podcast and start, and start Absolutely. a revolution or start an education revolution right from what, Yes. Yes. And so that's what I believe. I believe that, that I'm like you. I'm hopeful. Maybe that's why I was so naive that I didn't believe in evil. I, I st it's still hard for me to believe that people are evil. Um, but, I, you know, because I think that people are inherently good. 
and evil things has happened to them, and they have they and they and they um, they stepped over the line to the evil side, and they don't know how to get back. But I always believe I keep believing they can come back. But the fact that you, when you made the point to me, because I believe in the, in God and the human spirit, but the that boy that went into that church and shot those people at church. I don't understand that that type of spirit, but I was just think just think though this is me thinking uh, optimistic and um, you know hopeful and you know rose-colored <laughs> glasses. I'm, I'm one of those types of people too. Um, <laughs> just think if he was if he was taught love as a little kid and to be himself because he must have had some tremendous flaws, tremendous flaws. And tremendous misfortunes in his own life that somebody can convince him. Because I think that he didn't work alone. I think he was convinced that it was all right to go to Bible study. It's a feeling when you walk into a church, and plus a church like that. I've never been to um, that AME church, but I have been at AME, and it's one of the first uh, um, uh, uh, African American denominations in our country. So. So it's you know it's AMEs. If you research the AME faith, it's done a lot for American uh, civil rights. Mm-hmm. So so I know it's a reverence in there. I know it was a, a reverence and a a feeling of oh I'm at church. Not only I'm at church, I'm with God and God has been here. He's helped people here. His spirit was in there. So how can you walk into something like that and sit with people who love God and love God's people and actually do something like that unless it was something, if you was living in a tremendous flaw and evil life, mm-hmm. he had a lot of flaws and uh, yeah, so yeah so if, just think of this little boy this young man was taught about love and to think critically and thinking you probably thinking this is a bad idea <laughs> You know, like at one point, if somebody was talking to, him, I don't do that. You know, like some some people, even at when I've worked jobs, and um, I remember when I even sold pharmaceuticals, and um, and we were in a meeting one time talking about um, it was like this, we call it the sneezing, wheezing, sneezing seasons, like you know April, March when all the pollen comes out, and and then from that people get colds, and and so we were selling some product for antibiotic or something. So one of the people in the meeting said, oh, I hope a lot of people in my community uh, get have uh, allergies and oh, get a no. infection, a respiratory infection, so I can sell a lot of products. And so she said, I hope I get sick, too, and I'll just go into a movie theater and start coughing. And Was I she serious her, or joking? Please don't say that. Because okay. Seriously joking. <laughs> Evil. Seriously joking. So I said, why are you saying that? That's just so mean. You know, why would you want somebody to get sick? We're going to make money. The company's going to make money anyway because it's it's a it's a seasonal thing. The you know flus and colds and respiratory infections. So why would you wish that upon someone? And so she was like, "Yeah, Don was just joking, kind of." I said, "I know it, but not really. Why would you even say that to your mouth?" And then another time I was at a meeting. I was in a hospital with some, working with some young um, residents who were like in their second, third year residents of OBGYN. 
they were doing OBGYN rotation, and that's when toxic shock first came out, and from people leaving tampons in too long. And this young, and this uh, this young female OBGYN resident said, "Oh, I can't wait to a pa- one of my patients to get it so I can diagnose them." I said, "You know, when a person have toxic shock, mm-hmm. they're close to death. Why would you say that?" And so when these people, when I was in that field, and people would say stuff like you said, are they joking? I think jokingly, seriously, <laughs> they were jokingly serious, serious. That I used to always kind of cringe and also kind of correct them in the best way I could without being um, not being a team player or whatever that term is. But it's kind of like the other side of the coin that. of love. You know, you have yeah. to have the other side of the coin. <laughs> it just it's not all just positive and love and I think that's where people make the mistake to think everything is going to be lovely and wonderful and there's not going to be people who are going to do really bad things you know so if if you're going to have you know growth like you're talking about you're going to have decay right you know so it's always the other side of the coin that's where I'm always looking at it it's life and death you got to have both you know so even if it wasn't that young man that went into the to the church it'll be another church somewhere else right because you know it's just a, it is a part of this existence and that's what m scott peck was trying to get across is that we have to face it yeah. it's it's out there it's in people you know and i you know so i think that was just kind of where he was trying to head but it didn't work you know so um, yeah, and it goes back to what you said. Mm-hmm. He was trying to warn us because he probably mm-hmm. kept seeing increasingly in his practice that some people are inherently evil, and you know, and and because they have been lazy, they didn't deal with their own problems, and they are used, uh, you know, substances to get through it and not deal with it, and it made them even more cynical and more evil. And so get ready. What are we going to do about this? You know, and that's what I was thinking in this Bible study that we were in. We were talking about bearing white privilege. And I was thinking, we're going to read the book we're discussing. It's a very mixed group from all over the country. But I was thinking, so what are we, I'm going to say it next Sunday. So what do we plan to do about what we know? It's all right to read stuff. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what happened with Scott Peck's book. And now that I'm, you're, now we, you know, you and I are discussing. I think there should be required reading at some point in in your um, in in school, and before like the fifth, before high school, because if you know better, Maya Angelou said you do better. But I didn't even know that people right. were actually this evil. Or maybe I did and didn't want to deal with it. I didn't know that life was difficult. I I was living a difficult life, but maybe I didn't want to deal with it. But I think that we have to deal with it. We have to confront it. We have to um, make it a part of our curriculum. Not, you know, geometry is good. I still don't really think I use geometry. But life life is difficult. (laughs) 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 Haven't got away from that. <laughs> yes, that's the one. Oh, life is difficult. I took one hundred one, one hundred two, two hundred five. 
I don't took I'm post I'm I'm postgraduate. I'm I think I'm PhD. I've been life is difficult. <laughs> I'm, I'm cum laude, I know that. Oh, you know what, Diane? We should Google to see if there's a class out there on life is difficult. If not, you know, we can create it. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's a that's a, that's the class that we could teach you online, girl. And um, because we think that life has been difficult, but some people's oh my goodness. Sometimes when I'm um looking at movies or looking at documentaries, I was thinking, oh my goodness, baby, that mm-hmm. you know my little stuff is nothing compared to what they've been through. Um, yeah, you know some people have gone through so much that it will blow your mind and make you but they still overcame it. I was watching this Hillbilly movie Elegy about Hillbilly something. I just watched that. Elegy. <laughs> yes. Yes, and I was thinking, what do you do when your mother was a heroin addict? Well what do you do? And then but one thing it made me under when I looked at that movie Hillbilly Elegy, that's so America. It's so America that we don't deal with things, you know, like he was he was dealing with stuff because his mother was dealing with stuff. And his sister, you know, their family, they, but they never to Right, me, the grandmother. Move the husband down the street. <laughs> Your grandmother, yes. And that was to her, but, you know, we didn't know right. that the mother set the father on fire. Well, like, she was probably moving him down the street because she didn't want to kill him. Yes. 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 Yeah. And then it was a true story. Yes. And then it was a true story. And so, and I think that most of us are walking around with those true stories inside of us. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you can't even, not even the layers, you can't even speak it. Yeah. It's things that you can't, like, things that I'm sure he wasn't speaking that when he was in Yale, right? So, Diane, we're right at, we're almost at an hour. We're at 54 minutes right now. Okay. Life is difficult, but once you realize that life is difficult, you can transcend that. Yes, I think that we had, I think that, uh, just thinking about the people in my family and like people like you, I think the way we did it, we started reading. And we started reading a lot of self-help books and um, spiritual books and um, it started and trying to unpack it. And apply it. To do with mm-hmm. it. And kept going. And apply Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And apply it. Yes. 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 So thank you, um, M. Scott Peck, for telling us such a simple but powerful and relevant. Absolutely. And and thank you, Diane, for uh, agreeing to talk about this, even though we can't remember how we got to this point where this was going to be our subject. But hopefully for those of you that are listening, uh, it's it's books that are out there on Amazon that you can pick up and read. They're still in print. And it is uh, great information if you don't know that life is difficult and you don't know that there is evil in the world. Uh, two great resources to, to take a look at. Yeah. 
Well, Marie, another Sunday. Well, Absolutely. happy Sunday back I to you. I am too. You have a great rest another of your day, Diane. Sunday. I'm glad we're doing this. Okay. Bye.